Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week I speak to Lauren Calenzo Semple, who is a coach and PhD researcher who is currently pursuing her PhD at McMaster University in Canada under the guidance of Stu Phillips on training for the menstrual cycle. In this episode, Lauren shares her insights on the topic of menstrual cycle training based on her PhD research, which she is currently undertaking, and talks about this from both a coach and a researcher perspective. We discuss the limitations of current techniques used in the literature to determine menstrual cycle stage and how her research will contribute to a more robust evidence base that will determine whether the added complexity of menstrual phase training is evidence-based and necessary to understand more fully the female experience in training and performance. Overall, I have to say this evidence is a must-listen for anyone interested in understanding the evidence-based approach to menstrual cycle training. Lauren and I also talk briefly about the evidence for nutrition-based changes as determined by menstrual cycle phase. So um, I really think you're going to get a lot from this episode. So Lauren Calenzo-Semple is currently pursuing her PhD in integrative physiology at McMaster University. Her research focuses on the impact of exercise, nutrition and hormones on skeletal muscle. She has also worked and continues to work with hundreds of clients in person and online, including recreational lifters, mums-to-be and aspiring powerlifters and physique athletes. Lauren is also a contributor to MASS, which is a publication put out by Stronger by Science. Uh, those people interested in physique science will uh, be very familiar with these. I subscribe to MASS. It is such an excellent publication. And... Her most recent paper has actually just been published in the frontiers of sport and active living. And we have a link to this paper in the show notes today as well. Before we crack on into the interview, though, I would just like to remind you that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. This increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts, so more people get the opportunity to learn from guests that I have on the show. All right, team, please enjoy the conversation that I have with Lauren Colenzo Semple. Lauren, thank you so much for taking me taking the time to speak to me today about um, the evidence base for menstrual cycle phase training. And I understand that in your um, both in your research and of course your sort of background as a coach, this is something which you have a lot of experience in, and something that I get a lot of questions on as well um, in relation to when I speak to clients about well, both diet and and exercise. So. Can you start by giving the listeners um, some information on your background? Sure. I, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology and nutrition from the University at Buffalo, um, after which I worked for a few years, and that's when I started coaching clients and ultimately volunteered in a lab for a bit and got really into research and decided to go back for my master's. So I earned my master's degree from the University of South Florida with Bill Campbell. And then I came to McMaster University in Canada to start my PhD with Stu Phillips. And I've been here for almost four years now. So I'm just at the tail end here of my degree. Uh, amazing. So you're in write-up phase? Doing a, a bit of analysis still. Uh, just there's so much tissue. Um, yeah. I had my, my study had seven muscle biopsies per participant. So it's a lot of muscle to process. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And gosh, you also, you did your master's with Bill Campbell and you're doing your PhD with Stu Phillips. Do you like 
um, with the gurus in this space, Lauren? How exciting for you? Yeah, I've I've been really fortunate to to work with some incredible mentors. Uh, the first lab I worked in as a volunteer actually was Brad Schoenfeld's lab, who you may have heard of. And during my master's uh, in the in the summer in between the the two academic years, I spent the summer in Fullerton in Dr. Andy Galpin's lab, which was also oh, wow. a really wonderful experience. So I've worked in all you know a lot of different labs and with some really really great people. That is awesome. And so, and obviously your work as a coach, you work with a, a number of clients, um, I, I imagine many of them sort of female. How did you, I mean, being female as yourself, obviously, but how did you get interested in sort of wanting to explore more about menstrual um, phase sort of based training? I think it started with just noticing the lack of research in women in the, the exercise science space, because, uh, you know, of course, when I f- was first getting interested in the research, I was really interested in, in improving my own athletic performance and in making sure that I was coaching my clients in an evidence-based way. But it, it was very clear to me that the majority of the the evidence that we were pulling from as coaches were done in young men. Um, And so I think going into my master's, it was more about just wanting to do more resistance training research in women. And then after, uh, and and unfortunately, I would say there, there has been an increasing number of studies in women over the past five years or so. And so we're, we're starting to kind of close that gap. But of course, in when you look at, at female-specific um, resistance training guidelines, just in kind of the, the general public on blogs and in social media, you really do see that the menstrual cycle is something that you should really be aware of, or uh, are oral contraceptives better or worse for strength and hypertrophy? And there's a lot of, um, of, of kind of mixed information, I think, out there. And, uh, and also one of the reasons why women are often excluded from these studies is because there is a concern that the menstrual cycle phase in which you're tested uh, or the the kind of schedule around the resistance training is something that, that that will be a confounding variable. And so, you know, you need to quote unquote control for the menstrual cycle. And given the inconvenience um, and difficulty associated with that, it's just easier to do your study in young men, right? Yeah. Um, and so, of course, that then begs the question, does it really matter or and and if it and if not, then why not include both sexes in mm-hmm. studies? Mm-hmm. And so that that when I started taking a deeper dive into the literature, I, I realized, you know, I, I think it's really premature to say, yeah, this really matters and, and we need to be programming around the menstrual cycle or excluding women from research because it's going to be this huge influence. Yeah, interesting. What was your master's topic on? I mean, I know what was on, but was your, what were you looking at? I, I actually looked at uh, different training volumes in women. And so I had one group uh, exercising three days, sorry, both groups exercised three days per week, but one group did two sets of six exercises and the other group did five sets of all the six exercises. And so it was a pretty um, substantial volume difference. And we looked at strength outcomes and also muscle thickness changes in the lower body. And the the results were quite similar between groups, despite the fact that the high volume group was spending you know, over twice as much time in the gym. Oh, that is good news because I follow a program that has like about 18 um exercises in it for like the like the same body part and I end up doing like about a third of it and go this is me I am done so it's quite good that I'm saving myself time not needing to be in the gym. <laughs> um so Lauren can we um with regards to um menstrual cycle training it is really interesting that um you know up until this point or not this point but you know a number of years a couple of years ago uh it 
either wasn't considered when we're looking at the basis of sort of research. It was almost, um, and I remember looking at studies and it was um, not mentioned or almost ignored or not even really sort of talked about uh, or women weren't involved. And, you know, with the studies that have been done where the menstrual cycle hasn't been considered, if it was such a concern and it did make such a difference, would we then have to like throw out all of the research that's gone before? I'm not sure I'd say throw out, right? I, I think one of the most important things to remember with the the results of all these studies is that you're looking at group level averages. And yes. so we're saying, you know, on average, this particular sample, um, you know, did a, did a bit better with this protocol than another, um, you know, if, if you're looking at kind of between group differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and so to say that the the menstrual cycle phase would be such an influence that it would really disrupt those group averages, I mean, it would have to be a, a really substantial influence. So I, I think that we're, we're definitely not at, in, in a place where we would say, oh, you know, scrap all of that because they didn't account for the, the menstrual cycle. That said, it is a criticism. So if you try to submit a, a paper um, for, for, for peer review to a journal and you did not account for or track the, the, the cycle and try to standardize the, the testing phases in some way, then you you will be criticized for that and and you need to perhaps explain that as uh, you know a, a shortcoming of your mm. work mm. at least at this point okay so yeah interesting and and before we get to sort of what we do or don't know about um about how the menstrual cycle may or may not impact on performance outcomes. Can we just start with the basics and walk through some of the changes that occur across the menstrual cycle, which um, which may actually result in, or, or there may be a mechanism for a, um, a sort of a difference in outcomes? Sure. So during the first half of the menstrual cycle, or what we call the follicular phase, um, it, it starts, you know, with the onset of menstruation. And so for the, for those first several days, both of the, the primary hormones in question here, estrogen and progesterone, are very low. And throughout this phase, progesterone stays low, but estradiol starts to increase. And mid-cycle, right before ovulation, is when we will see peak estrogen levels throughout the cycle. After ovulation, the estradiol levels are kind of moderate to high, but not as high as they were in that that peak. And then the progesterone levels start to increase slowly so that they're moderately high throughout the, the, the luteal phase or the second half of the cycle. And then both hormones decrease and we start a new cycle, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens, what what is it about the change in hormones that may influence um, sort of performance outcomes or how someone might feel when they're training? And we're, we're thinking predominantly about strength training here, aren't we? Yes. So the, uh, the estrogen hormone has been studied in animal models, looking at the influence of, of estrogen on muscle in rodents. And the, the major model that, uh, that, that they'll use for this kind of research is called an ovarectomy when you remove the the ovary. So basically you're, uh, you're having very, very low levels of the the hormones. Um, And so this would be much, much lower than what a a menstruating woman or even a postmenopausal woman would experience. But the the model shows us what happens in the absence of the hormones and you do see these detrimental effects to muscle Um, and so those results indicate that perhaps estrogen is involved with repair from muscle damage um, or perhaps it's involved in muscle growth or perhaps the absence of estrogen is associated with 
muscle loss and strength loss. And there are a few different mechanisms that have been proposed here. Uh, it could be an influence on muscle protein turnover. It could be an influence on myosin function. It could be an influence on satellite cells. But the the extent to which this translates to humans is really yet to be determined because again i want to stress we're talking about a model where it, there really is the absence of the hormone and throughout the and so you're looking at an extreme example whereas throughout the menstrual cycle we're seeing fluctuations in hormones but it, it isn't like an on-off switch Okay. Okay. And with regards to um, any human data, like, like, so is there? So, what does the studies, or what would the studies show there, if there is, if there are studies which which sort of look at this? There are a couple of studies that show that training in the follicular phase, when we do have the, the highest estrogen, is superior for muscle growth and strength gains compared to training in the luteal phase. And so the, the proposed um, sort of reasoning behind that is that either there's something anabolic or, or stimulatory for growth about estrogen, or there's something catabolic or inhibitory about progesterone. And I, I, I mentioned what we what we know from the animal models about estrogen that you know perhaps the absence of it is problematic but we know very little about progesterone and there really haven't been um, any studies to indicate that in fact it, it is catabolic or potentially problematic for for growth however uh, it there's been this assumption based on the findings of those two papers um, and all and, and, you know just that it, well if estrogen is uh, is a positive then progesterone must be a negative yeah it's interesting because i've i've heard people um describe progesterone as extremely catabolic even and they're like oh in your luteal phase it's extremely catabolic with the progesterone so we must um increase uh, our protein intake by quite a lot and which i mean i'm a massive advocate of protein anyway so i you know like it's it's um as you know you study under Stu phillips i think he's a bit of a you know he is like the protein guy um but the extent to which progesterone is catabolic so has that only come about because they have, we haven't seen the same gains in the luteal phase or what mechanism might be behind that i it's a massive assumption and i i and i don't know um because it really it hasn't been studied and it needs to be um at a, at a purely mechanistic level um it, ha it hasn't been looked at we know that there are progesterone receptors in skeletal muscle, and that's sort of it. Um, so I uh, and I, I've seen those recommendations too about adjusting your nutrition, and that is sort of shocking to me because the uh, I mean, we'd, in order for that to be necessary, it would have to be massively catabolic. Yes, um, yeah, you'd be wasting away through half of the half of the month. And and if that and if that's the case, then why is it that women, on a relative basis, actually gain the same amount of muscle size and strength as men? Um, you know, I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense if half of the month, you know, you're you're basically, uh, you know, you shouldn't even bother resistance training because you're in this extremely catabolic state. Yeah. Yeah, super interesting. And I, I think I've seen someone talk about there's an increased protein turnover or something during the luteal phase. But even I might even have just been imagining that, actually, like someone might have just been speculating as to why. And there must have I been, obviously, you've just told us there's no mechanistic data to suggest that it could even be sort of a possibility, much less 
you know, human clinical trials showing it. So it's super interesting. It's definitely one of the the areas of the literature that is, it, it's a huge gap. And I look forward to learning more about progesterone, but we're certainly nowhere near the point where we should be making practical recommendations about exercise programming or nutrition based on this guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I totally understand. Now, with regards to the follicular phase and the ability to build more muscle during the follicular phase, um, I heard you describe it um, before in that um, there like the actual like estrogen is only high for a certain number of small amount of time throughout the entire phase isn't it it's not like it's extremely high during follicular because of course with the menstrual cycle both hormones are low so can you explain that a little bit further lauren yeah, and I, I would encourage your listeners to perhaps Google uh, hormone fluctuations throughout the menstrual cycle so you can get a nice visual here. But what you'll see is, the, the let's say the first seven days on average, the, the hormones are pretty low. And then we see a, a, a fairly um, a, a heavy spike in, in estrogen that takes place over maybe three to five days. Uh, and then we have ovulation. And this varies between individuals and the extent to which we're getting uh, a big increase in estrogen is also going to vary between individuals. But when you look at the, the first half where both are low and then the latter portion where estrogen is high, and then you compare that to the luteal phase where both hormones are kind of at a moderate level. When it comes to estrogen, it sort of seems like a wash because you have low and then really high in the one phase, and then you have moderate in the other phase. And if you kind of collapse it, then there, over the cycle, you're you're at a kind of moderate level. And so, in order for there to be something very special and anabolic about estrogen. Not only is would that have to be the case, but it would have to be very potent and stimulatory just for several days, and that's a bit hard to to reconcile uh, because, like I said, we know that that the absence of estrogen is perhaps um, a, a problematic situation, but is is three to four days of high estrogen so additive to to growth and and gains in muscle strength that it kind of blows training in the luteal phase out of the water uh probably not (laughs) (laughs) yeah and of course throughout the follicular phase we do get a bump in testosterone don't we like just in the lead up to ovulation like how much would that contribute to um muscle growth or or that feeling of because people often relate your follic your your whole menstrual cycle to the ways that you should feel you know you should feel bulletproof and you should feel like a you're you know you could win a strong women co- like competition and then then you should feel like you want to go away and hide in a hole for you know 10 days or whatever so so does testosterone play a role in all of this Lauren that we know oh, I mean what we know about about testosterone has changed uh, considerably over the past 10, 20 years or so, because it mm. used to be thought that uh, that testosterone was this huge driver of, uh, of hypertrophy. Yeah. And w- while that is probably true during, g- during growth, so, you know, during adolescence and, and the onset of puberty, um, when you are an adult and you have testosterone levels that are in a normal range, um, the, that is not associated with your hypertrophic potential. So, and, and, you know, testosterone levels in men can vary considerably into, you know, there's quite a large range of what's normal, but as long as you are, are within that, that range, there, there is really no kind of predictive element of, of your potential for hypertrophy. And 
the and and that is kind of in in contrast to what we thought uh, twenty years ago, fifteen years ago. And similarly, there used to be um, a a lot of attention around these kind of post exercise spikes in hormones, and that that was this this anabolic window and you're really looking to, I, I, there were even training programs about how to get like your biggest increase in testosterone and IGF-1 post-workout. Um, and and now we see that, yes, while you do see an increase, um, what's important is what's going on bigger picture day to day. Um, and the, the same thing with, with protein turnover, right? And so what we see with, with the, um, these small windows of, of increased hormone levels are not translating into uh, something meaningful for response to exercise in, in, in terms of muscle growth. So that's another reason why we're, we have to be a little bit skeptical about the about the, the actions of the female sex hormones, right? Because if, um, not to say that they that they don't play a role, but what we see with testosterone, for example, is that it's only, um, you know, massively anabolic if it's taken at supraphysiological levels. So we're talking about people who are taking exogenous hormones. And uh, the, the fluctuations in uh, in in men from throughout the day for example are not something that we really need to pay close attention to so of course the difference when we're talking about ovarian hormones in naturally cycling women is that we do see these these variations throughout the the month and so the week to week the hormonal profile is a little bit different yeah. Okay. And I mean, you mentioned naturally cycling women, and obviously a lot of women are on hormone contraception, be it the um, you know an, a localized sort of IUD or be it the actual the oral contraceptive pill. Uh, what do we know about the influence of that on muscle? If you know, is it detrimental to muscle gain or performance? Does it not make a difference? So, and first, can you also describe just for people who are unaware, what happens when you take an oral contraceptive to your cycle? Sure. So when you're taking the the oral contraceptives, those are exogenous hormones or synthetic hormones. And the the most common version of that is a is a combination pill so you're have you're a, it's a synthetic estradiol and a synthetic progesterone um, or a progestin and those pills shut down your um, endogenous or kind of natural hormone levels and so you no longer experience the hormonal fluctuations that I described earlier during the the menstrual cycle because you're you're not actually experiencing a normal regular menstrual cycle anymore and there have been several papers on this topic and the research is really mixed some say some show you know a a small effect that it's beneficial Um, others show a small effect that it's detrimental but I think the biggest takeaway that that we have at this point is to say in either direction, the effect is going to be small. And so I, I would decide, you know, to, to go on oral contraceptives or not, you know, based on a whole other host of factors and the, the, my potential response to resistance training would probably be very low on the list. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And, um, the, you know, it's interesting. I, not a lot of people, and I think probably, um, uh, you know, women are now aware of this, but if I'm talking to teenagers about the menstrual cycle and I say to them, oh, it actually shuts off your cycle rather than regulates it. It's quite a surprise to them and actually a surprise maybe to their parents as well. So maybe I was too too quick to say that I think women know this because actually I don't think a lot of women realize that that's actually what happens because when you 
go on an oral contraceptive for reasons other than contraception, often it's to regulate your cycle, um, not necessarily shut it down. I'm not sure if it's the same in America or Canada, but that's what. Yeah, that's it. It's a really good point. And uh, I, my my experience in in Canada isn't as I you know I've only been here for a few years, but in the U.S. it was very very common for physicians to suggest that you go on oral contraceptives to as you say you know regulate your cycle. But the the only the only regulatory component of it is that week where you no longer take the the hormones, and then that allows you to have a breakthrough bleed that's not actually a real period. So it, it's, I guess it psychologically regulates your cycle, <laughs> yeah. um, but if there's a hormonal imbalance, that's not fixing it. No, it's just sort of masking it until such time that, you know, you may come off and then, and then everything, the, all the chickens come home to roost. I think that's the, that's the thing, um, or maybe the roosters. Um, so Lauren, what about, menopause and perimenopause because obviously the, it's a particularly perimenopause is significant sort of fluctuations in estrogen progesterone is sort of on its way out testosterone levels drop a bit and more and more of course if you look out on social media there are not only are, are there sort of recommendations for how to train around your cycle and eat around your cycle there are now recommendations for um how to train in and around perimenopause, menopause. So um, do you have any comments or, or uh, experience in that realm with regards to your, what you're looking at? I, I, I do think this is, uh, is a very important area of research, and I will tie this back to the animal work I discussed earlier when we're, when we're seeing you know, that, there, that there might be something to it with the absence of estrogen. Um, I think that it's possible that this is why we see muscle loss, strength loss, um, loss of function in, in, in older women. Uh, I think that might be a component to it, and it's definitely something that, that we should keep in mind. Uh, I, I know that there's kind of mixed reviews on the potential influence of hormone replacement therapy, but that, that is something that is interesting to me. Uh, but I think the biggest thing I would say we can do in order to to set ourselves up for that perimenopause period is to start resistance training as early as we can. And so, yes, you, if you start training at 50, 60, 70, you do still see benefits, particularly with kind of functional assessments. Uh, but I think we 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 would set ourselves up for more success if we kind of put on the muscle pre- preemptively, and that and then yeah maybe we still are going to experience some muscle loss, some loss in strength, but you kind of you've built your savings account early on, so you can you have a cushion there right for some of those losses, and that's. I, I, I'm encouraged to see that it is more common for women to lift weights, but that certainly hasn't always been the case. And I think our current generation of women in that age group, um, it's, it's not the norm that they, yeah. they lifted weights throughout their adulthood. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reflecting on this this morning for whatever reason. I think I saw a post saying um, you're doing it all wrong or something like that. You know, the the message was that if you're doing all cardio, then you're doing it all wrong, um, which which is true. However, of course, 20, 30 years ago, this is what the research sort of told us we needed to do. You know, it's just a, a change in what we know. And I and when the messages are sort of put out there like like that, it's not necessarily blaming the woman for it, but that's sort of the sense of it. Like, oh, if you're not seeing results, then it's obviously you're doing something wrong. Um, but based on, you know, but everything everything evolves and it just takes a little bit more time to um, for sort of people to catch up. And I suppose when it comes to the menstrual cycle and the sort of phase-based training, this is yet another thing that women could potentially go, oh, well, I... Well, no wonder I'm not seeing results because I've been, you know, doing X, Y, Z in the gym on this day of the month when really I should have been doing yoga or something like that. Yeah, I'm I'm disheartened to see 
information like that because I, I think that exercise is good in any form. And so to to kind of make people feel like they're inadequate or they're doing something wrong or, or you know, they, they should be doing something differently. I, I mean, it, uh, can you improve your, your exercise habits and your program? Absolutely. But it, you, you certainly shouldn't be shamed for having, uh, you know, what is theoretically suboptimal habits because the, the benefits of, of exercise are so overwhelmingly positive, even at small doses, that I, I think we should really be looking at the the, the big picture here of w- what's important and how can we get the how can we maximize the benefits instead of really overcomplicating things and saying, oh, you know, what a waste of time if you're exercising and you're not wearing that that wearable uh, or tracking your sleep or uh, writing down everything you eat or training around your menstrual cycle. Um, so I, I think there, there's there's so many messages about how all these things that we need to be accounting for and concerned about. And that can make even just the prospect of starting an exercise program incredibly overwhelming. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then, of course, you know, you're a researcher, but you're a coach as well. What's your practical experience of training women? Like, how much does their menstrual cycle play into um, how they, well, psychologically, how they feel on a, you know, month by month basis, but also with any progression or, or anything like that? So, Lauren, what's your sort of world, real world view? Yeah, I think that in, uh, with many of my female clients, they tend not to push themselves as much as they can. So there's a little bit of a, of a self-confidence thing there. Um, and once I encourage them to really focus on progression and, you know, can we do another repetition on that exercise this week? Can we add a bit more weight? Uh, then you you really see some amazing progress. And I think that's also really beneficial psychologically as well, because you see I'm, I'm tangibly getting stronger here. Um, my physique is is changing and um, and that can really help with adherence because you you see yourself, um, you know, really reaping the benefits um, from from week to week or month to month. In terms of the need to uh, to account for the menstrual cycle, I will if it's something that comes up for that individual client. And I uh, and some people I, I just work on their exercise program. Some people I also work with on their nutrition, and there are some people who have issues with digestion, and we need to really. Um, kind of work out some GI issues because those are interfering with their training or or with their diet. Uh, and there are there are some people who have periods of stress or you know issues with travel, and we need to adjust their programming you know uh, accordingly. And uh, of course, if if you have an illness that comes up, then we need to adjust. So I, I really kind of put the the menstrual cycle in that, yeah, let's address it as needed um, kind of category. And if we know, oh, you know, my client experiences really severe premenstrual symptoms um, kind of regularly around this this time of, of the month, then we build in some sort of rep ranges that we should hit, or maybe we adjust kind of um, an RPE or an RIR goal. uh, And then that allows you to go in and feel like, oh, I I can still have a good workout, but maybe today is not the day to, uh, to, to add more weight, or maybe today's not the day to do a strength assessment because I don't feel great. And, but I, I would, I would apply the same, um, I would apply the same rules if you didn't feel great for another reason. Um, yeah, I, I think you know it's it's just it's a it's a personal call, 
And maybe if you didn't get enough sleep the night before, then that would also be a day that maybe you're not going to set any PRs. But I, I have never seen any kind of across the board trends in terms of menstrual cycle with my clients. Um, other than the fact that around the onset of menstruation, the majority of people tend to gain a little bit of scale weight. That's the only trend I've ever seen. And so for that reason, if we're on a kind of weight loss plan, then I would, I would discount those numbers from my average. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, that's great. So really you're, what you're talking about is there is a lot of, it's, it's individual and how someone should approach their, what they do on a month by month basis is based around how they experience, you know, their, I suppose their lifestyle plus menstrual cycle, not necessarily that there's a strict protocol that you um, should sort of adhere to. Absolutely. You know, I think it's important that that you listen to your body uh, when it comes to all aspects uh, that, that are going to affect uh, how, how you perform and how you feel. And if you start to see some trends, then you, you can make an adjustment. You know, another example that comes to mind is, ha- is people who exercise early in the morning. Some people love that and some people feel terrible. <laughs> and if you try it out and it, it really isn't for you, then see if you can, if you can exercise in the evening instead. Um, and, and that, and the, but that's totally individual. I wouldn't say, Oh, clearly, you know, morning workouts are bad for everybody, but they might not be a good fit for you. And so it is, it really, and that's the art of coaching, right? We have fundamental principles that, that we, you know, that we can start from and we we like to be evidence-based in our practice. But when it comes down to coaching one individual, then the results of all these studies, which as we discussed are group averages are not necessarily going to apply to that one individual. So the science is a starting point. And then the the adjustments that we can make in a coach-client relationship, that is where the individualization really comes into play. Yeah, no, that's great. And then, of course, if someone is tracking their cycle, they're able to get a sense of what happens month on month. But as I understand it, and I think you spoke about this on another, on the Iron Culture podcast, not only are there differences between women, there are differences with for a woman, depending on what, you know, uh, on any given month as well. Is that right? Absolutely. And so I, I mentioned earlier that there are these couple of papers that show the follicular phase-based training was superior to luteal phase-based training. And one of the the criticisms that I have of those papers, it comes back to the methods of how they determined cycle phase. And so when you you look at an average menstrual cycle, it, it uh, it looks at approximately 28 days and ovulation occurs on day 14. And you can detect ovulation in a few different ways. But if you're looking at uh, something like a period tracking app where it will tell you when you're ovulating, that's an estimation based on your cycle length on average. So for most people, if they have a longer cycle, they will ovulate a bit later in the month. Um, So that to say, there are plenty of women who have 25 day cycles and some who have 35 day cycles and there are women women who ovulate on day 12 and women who ovulate on day 19 and sometimes there is no relationship between ovulation timing and cycle length and so in my research i have them track their cycles for several months before even participating and during that time um, uh, my participants take urinary um, ovulation tests, and so we can determine the the timing of their ovulation. And that is something that can vary in the same woman from month to month, as you alluded to as well. So there's a there's a ton of, of variability there. And the reality is that unless 
you, uh, unless you're tracking for fertility purposes, the majority of women are not regularly tracking their ovulation. So in that sense, you don't actually know that you're in your follicular phase or your luteal phase. So this attempt to structure your diet and your exercise around that, uh, my, you might not actually even be doing what you're intending to do because you don't have the information to to really plan it that way. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned that temperature isn't the best indicator. And this is one which I see recommended all of the time is you just track your temperature and that'll tell you. And I've said that to several people as well, because that in my, as I understood, that was your be, the best sort of um, proxy. But what are the challenges there, Lauren? Yeah, the the um, basal body temperature is something that has been used in the literature as well, and I know has also been recommended in the past for fertility purposes. Uh, but if you look in the the gynecological community, that's no longer recommended, um, and it and it, you you're really it, it's not a a good method on for for research or perhaps even for the individual woman uh, you're you're looking for a very small increase uh, in in basal body temperature that is um, it, it's indicative that ovulation has occurred because the increase in progesterone in the luteal phase um, can cause a small increase in body temperature. But uh, you know, importantly, the there are so many other factors that influence basal body temperature, including uh, stress, uh, alcohol, illness, your environment. Um, so it's it's difficult to even get a consistent read. And then we're talking about a very small increase that some women don't even experience. So they ovulated, but they don't experience a, an increase in in basal body temperature. So when we're looking at, at the the most accurate ways of detecting ovulation, uh, the the convenient one is the the uh, the urine strip. So they are detecting the surge in luteinizing hormone that's associated with ovulation, and the other way would be a blood test. And again, we can measure luteinizing hormone in the blood as well. Okay, and how accurate is luteinizing hormone? Like, is it like if it's if there's a surge, is it a surge that might last for several days, so you know that it's a definitive, or is it something that you can miss? Yeah, that's it's it's a really good question, and and what you'll see is the the sur the the degree to which we get a surge can vary between people, uh, and the the length of time for which the surge hangs around also varies and so you might see uh positive tests for two or three days or you might miss it because it occurred over a period of hours in which case i would say oh can you go back and instead you know, for purposes of, of research I, i'd say can you um can you take multiple tests in this day, just in case we have what's what's referred to as a fleeting ovulation, and it's a really kind of finite window. So it's it's not one size fits all by any no. means. No. And are there any patterns, Lauren, with regards to the type of woman who might get a fleeting ovulate of ovulation versus someone who has you know experiences a more drawn out? Like, do we know anything about that, or is it actually just quite individual? No, I mean it. I, and it's very individual, and it can also re, um, change from one month to the next. Yeah, and there are you can also experience a, an anovulatory cycle, and, and maybe you don't ovulate that one cycle. So it, it's there. There are some women who are very, very consistent with their cycle length and their ovulation timing uh, but there are there are also women who are not um and i i think it really i don't i don't have a, a good explanation as to why that might be yeah okay no that's that's totally fine and i mean so really we're um it sounds to me like the 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 state of the evidence right now is that it's how you 
could train in and around your menstrual cycle is actually it's much more it's more about how you're feeling on a day-to-day basis and less about the menstrual cycle and more about overall sort of just state of being really I mean I would say so I think that like I said if you're somebody who who really notices a pattern of of feeling a particular way then maybe you you know you you try to incorporate a kind of auto-regulatory approach to, to your training. And it's not that it isn't, it, you know, if you're, if you're taking your, your training really seriously and you really want to account for, for all of these things and you do start to notice some patterns here, then I, I'm not saying, I'm not discounting that on an individual basis that, that perhaps um, there, there would be some, some differences in motivation to train or menstrual symptoms or, or, you know, other factors that, that would influence your performance. But I think that this idea that we, we all need to kind of adjust our training based on the, the, based on cycle phase, it's, is not, it's not only premature to suggest that, I don't know that it would ever be appropriate to suggest that because it also kind of assumes that everybody has the same goals and that everybody is willing to to, to perform this type of exercise or that. And I don't know what you've seen, but I, I've seen some like, oh, you should be doing light stretching or yoga that week. You know, what if I don't like yoga? What if I'm not going <laughs> to yeah. do yoga? Should I just not exercise? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I sort of feel like if, you know, if you are more catabolic in one particular phase, then that would almost suggest to me that you need to go harder in your workout so you get the benefit from one aspect of it rather than, um, rather than uh, and, and you take your recovery seriously and have a lot of protein, but um, not necessarily that you need to like shut up shop for a, for a week or so and then sort of come back in, into it. I, I've also seen some recommendations for uh, you know, increasing carbohydrate intake based yes. on on cycle phase, and that has is pretty mind boggling to me because you know when you're when you're talking about exercise performance, it's intensity dependent, right? So depending on the on, on what the activity is, yes, we will be burning more carbohydrate or more fats, and so. The idea that regardless of what you're doing, you should be adjusting your nutrition simply because the the menstrual cycle would have that influence. It it, it doesn't make sense, you know. If if you're if you're going uh, to do some powerlifting and I'm going to run a marathon, our dietary needs are are going to be very different for performance, and our fuel fuel utilization will be very different. Um, so I I'm I'm really I'm perplexed by those sorts of blanket recommendations in terms of adjusting your macronutrient needs. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally appreciate what you're saying. Um, finally, Lauren, can you just tell us a little bit about your research and and sort of where it's headed and, and what it's going to help inform for us? Sure. So one of the, the biggest things that I tried to implement in my studies is what we're trying to call gold standard menstrual cycle verification methods. And so there, um, in some previous papers, they've just assumed that, oh, everyone has a 28 day cycle. Everyone ovulates on day 14. So those people are in their luteal phase and those people are in their follicular phase. And for all of the reasons I explained, you know, that is, um, it's not good enough. And it's, and if, if we're not going to be very, very comprehensive in the methods we use, then we, we can't make these claims that the, 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 the cycle phase is, you know, incredibly influential. So that's definitely one of the one of the priorities with my work, and also what I hope um, future researchers will will try to apply um, in in their own studies. But what I am looking at is the the influence of exercise within a person. Um, so they 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 I see them in what once in the pre-ovulation or, or follicular phase, they come in five days before I'm predicting ovulation. And, and there's 
There's two exercise sessions over that five-day period. Um, and we're taking a, a biopsy um, at, uh, in the first day. And then they exercise just one leg. So I can compare the, the exercising leg to the resting leg. Uh, and so w- what this will give us is a, um, a measure of muscle protein synthesis over a couple of days. So in response to the two exercise sessions and they're spaced two days apart. And then they repeat that five days after their positive ovulation test. So that'll put us kind of right in the mid luteal phase. So I, I chose those two time points because I really wanted to take advantage of that time when estrogen is highest. So those five days, and then that the time when when progesterone is highest. So the the five days in the middle of the of the luteal phase. And I, I have them the the them come in um randomized order in terms of which phase comes first and which one leg exercises in one phase and the other leg exercises in the other phase and and so this it's a the advantage of this kind of design is that it's it's within subject and so i'm going to see uh the the extent to which we we get an, an an increase in muscle protein synthesis in response to exercise in the same person in each phase. And, and so I, I mentioned there's so many differences between individuals that uh, it, it's, um, it, it's not quite as thorough a, a design to compare kind of two groups because we're looking for, for the, the differences in um, in these hormonal profiles that are really variable between people. So yeah. uh, that that's the goal here with the menstrual cycle. And then I repeated the same study in women on oral contraceptives. Um, and instead of doing it follicular and luteal, I did it in the, the active pill phase. Yes. And then during the week that they're off the, yeah. the hormones. Yeah. Nice. And so, so it really, it'll be like a case series of what you find with your research. Was that like, could you, is it like how, is that how it would work? So it, it, it is an intervention. It's just an intervention. No, but, um, I, I'm just, I'm comparing a person to themselves, a, a person than, to themselves. That's yeah, right. Yeah, as yeah. opposed to one person to another. Um, and so, so, you know, the, the intervention is in your luteal phase, your left leg is exercising. Let's see the yeah. protein synthetic response to that. And then in the follicular phase, your right leg is exercising. Let's see the the protein synthetic response to that. And so if there is a difference, we will see it because it's in the same person. Um, and and of, of course, this isn't equivalent to a, a long-term training study where we're going to see muscle growth, but the the muscle protein synthetic response is a really good indicator of kind of what's going on um, at at the and, and the our ability to take biopsies is really unique in that we can we can actually uh, we can we can really see what's going on at a molecular level. No, that's great, and I imagine that your research will be able to to contribute to some of the lacking progesterone research that current like the fact that there's next to nothing on that space like that's um that'll be really great to see what your results show yeah i'm I'm really looking forward to just getting more work out there and the ultimate goal here whether it whether it matters or not is really important moving forward with with research um because if if it's not important then there's no reason why we shouldn't include both men and women or include both women who are naturally cycling and on oral contraceptives, you know, in the same study intervention group. Uh, and so I think that really importantly, if, if it makes a difference, then it will establish kind of best practices for researchers to account for that in their research moving forward. And if it doesn't make a difference, then it will kind of remove this this level of uncertainty and this this sort of reluctance to include women for um, the you know to uh, to avoid the headache of dealing with all of that um, and and then we can just be more inclusive in in our studies and be confident that 
you know that it's not a confounding variable. We are, um, you know, we're we're not. It's not important to make sure that you know everyone is tested on the same day. Or yeah, no, that's great, Lauren. And is it too early to ask for any? early insights from your research or are you currently you mentioned at the start of our call that you're currently in the depths of measuring tissue so like I yeah yeah I so we're we're currently doing the the analysis and it's fairly time consuming there's a lot of bloods to go through and urine saliva muscle so there's a lot to sift through but um I'd say my my biggest takeaways have have been just that variability in cycle length and ovulation timing and really uh, to 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 see how much it, it, it how important it really is to account for this and certainly if you are adjusting your training around this then I would hope you are actually monitoring when your ovulation occurs. And uh, because other, you know, if you're going to go to all that trouble, you might as well have the information. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, completely, Lauren. And um, uh, that's, it's funny, actually, because you really haven't settled anything other than that it is quite individual and we don't really know a lot. Um, but it was super interesting and it was super interesting for us to sort of hear that, I think, particularly because, you know, there is that strong message out there that it is something that we need to consider. Um, now, I understand that you are now contributing to Mass. Is that correct? The That is, yeah. Yeah. And are you going to be writing about that? alongside and like within that publication yeah ab- absolutely you know I'm very excited to join the mass team they're an amazing group and I look forward to covering you know the the research that relates to the you know what we've discussed today and some other topics as well you know I think it's a, it's a really valuable resource and I am you know very honored to join the team that is awesome. And we'll definitely put links to that in the show notes. Where else can people find you, Lauren? Sure. My Instagram is laurencs1. And I hope to be sharing more information on there kind of moving forward as I come out from the cave that is <laughs> getting the PhD. <laughs> um, and and I, will, I will say, you know, uh, yeah, I... I didn't really give you much to go on definitively, right? Which is great. But that's just the nature of science. And if yes. you see people claiming that, uh, you know, you must be doing this or you must be doing that and, um, and they, you know, they have all the answers, I guarantee you that they don't or that they are ignoring the, the fact that this is really complicated yeah. and it would, it would be, much easier if I could come and give you like a really nice little answer, you know, wrapped up in a bow that clearly we need to be doing this, this, and this. And those are your take take homes. But um that the the nature of science is that it's a it's a process and the methods need to improve over time and we need to replicate studies in order to be confident in the results. And it's it's a shame that some people, you know, for kind of attention or financial gain are willing to push that aside or divert people's attention from the, you know, sometimes boring reality that maybe yeah. we just don't know yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I completely appreciate that. Lauren, thank you. This has been um, a great discussion. I know that I'll have lots of people who will be super interested in that and will be super interested in checking out your Instagram and of course, um, Mass as well. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Alrighty then, so hopefully you enjoyed that 
conversation that we had and look she is on the ball she's the one that's doing the research in this space so I'm really excited to see the outcomes of some of her more intricate studies which are obviously ongoing at the time and you know her most recent paper does include of course Stu Phillips who, who is her supervisor but also Kirsty Sale who is super well known in this space as well so it certainly includes a robust team of researchers who are contributing to this space and um, is the most current evidence that we have. All right, team, next week on the podcast, I am delighted to chat to Ellie Gilbert, who is known as the queen of men's health. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin or head to my website mickeywillardin.com where you can sign up to a number of my meal plans or book a one-on-one call with me. All right team, hope you have a great week and uh, talk soon. See ya.